are your four guys for medals right here. Somehow, Philly Shannon stays with him. Here comes Colonia. Dario Colonia is back, and he's going for the gold of the skiathlon. Can Halder match him? Colonia's got to make it decisive because it's a downhill from right at the top of this hill. Colonia gets the gap. Look at the gap. Two, three seconds right there. Colonia has to get away. They're all running on fumes. The first Swiss skier to ever win a cross-country medal. And he waited to just the very end. There is nothing left in anybody. Nothing left. Colonia is dead, but he's in front. Can he hang on? Helner is quick, but look, they're all gasping for breath. Felix Johnny coming on the outside to try to get Russia in for a medal. Sunday trying to close the door. This is a race for silver and bronze. We're looking at Colonia is away for the gold. It's very possible my dog just farted. <laughs> is it just me or does it smell like dog farting here? I didn't notice it yet, but I'm sure I will. Welcome to uh, Season 4, Episode 4 of the Sportscasters. It is February 11, 2014. Dead smack in the middle of the Sochi Winter Olympics. Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, on the show today, we have Brian Curtis from Grantland. as uh, a staff writer over there who's written some really great things recently. Uh, a really, really interesting article about the 59th rated recruit on national signing day so he kind of went you know not for a five-star top 10 guy but he spent some time embedded with the 59th guy which is still very very intense for football recruiting and he also wrote wrote a really nice article about uh, hockeyfights.com you ever go to that site occasionally yes yeah he wrote about the guy who kind of invented it who is a media mogul apparently really has this big job in the media like in New York City and lives on Long Island and runs the site from there. Yeah, I'm not a big fight guy, but I'll go see how some of them, like the fans score the fights sometimes. And it's interesting how like any Toronto player involved in a fight wins the wins, fight, no yeah. matter how bloody he is when he leaves yeah. the ice. So Brian Curtis is going to join us to talk about a couple of articles and what he's working on over at Grantland. And Rob Pizzo, one of the few remaining hockey analysts not in Sochi available to preview uh, the hockey men's hockey tournament, which is finally going to get going here in the next day or so. So uh, Pizzo's Pizzo, who's going to used to join us all the time back when he used to host the uh, Puck Daddy podcast with, right, right. with uh, Puck Daddy, and has been on a couple times since. Is going to join us today. So we got those two interviews. Also got a book club update today. No greatest of all time. Going to give that a rest. One last thing. We're going to start it off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So we mentioned off the top there that the Sochi Olympics are underway, and the question I always want to know from Don when big, huge sporting events like this are going on, is, are you watching? You know what? I I said right off the bat last week that I would be, but I really haven't much. I don't know if it's just a matter of not being able to find it. Uh, 
Nothing, maybe because hockey hasn't started yet, because I know I'll be watching that. Uh, it's definitely been the least interested I've been in, in Olympics in quite a while. I think one thing is, like, who are the stars of this Olympics? And let's take the hockey tournament out of it, because obviously if you're a fan of NHL hockey, you're going to be really sure. excited for that hockey tournament. It almost feels like a subplot to the Olympics as a whole. Right. There's, like, there's the NHL hockey tournament that's going on in the middle of the Olympics, and then there's everything else. Mm-hmm. Who are the stars of the everything else? Like, who is the Michael Phelps of this? Who is the who is the person from any other sport? I, I always want to know about the women's figure skating because that's usually the big thing. So I asked my cousin, who's a figure skater, who's our girl this year? And does she have any chance to win? She named two girls and said, sadly, she probably does not have a chance to win. She'd have to. I asked her, I said, if the, I think she said it was the Japanese and the Russian girls would be the favorites. I said, if the, if the Russian girl is the Seahawks and the Japanese girl is the Broncos, Broncos who is the U.S. girl? said she'd be like a team kind of like the Saints. Good enough to be there in the playoffs, could beat anyone on the right day, but would need a perfect day and some mistakes the other way to win. So I don't know. I just don't know who the stars of this Olympics are. I don't know. Yeah, Sean White uh, would probably be the biggest name, like like the biggest household name, but I don't. I think he did not win a medal. Or he might have medaled, but he didn't gold like he was trying to three-peat or something like that. It's The story wasn't built up the way the, uh, like you said, Michael Phelps story was. It seems like was. the stories of these Olympics have been like pink eye for Bob Costas. Yeah, that one ring not opening in the opening ceremony. Right, and supposedly that person who ruined it was, was murdered with millions of yeah, dogs. Yeah, I guess that's that's, that's a, a big internet though. hoax, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. The biggest names to me that I've seen are people like Johnny Weir, Tara Lipinski and Apollo Ono. But right. Those are all they're announcers. past Olympians. Right. right. But announcing the... the games. Yeah. So it's off to a slow start. Yeah. I guess the way they put it. It goes from February 7th to February 23rd and it's only February 11th. So right. it's not like we're in even the meat of it. And I'm sure the biggest competitions weren't going to be in the first couple of days before everyone had a chance to realize Hey, the 22nd Olympic Games are underway. Let's get in front of our TV every night. I want to give you a chance. I don't know if you have it in front of you. Maybe you don't. But top three countries in the medal count. You know, I heard right last now? night. It was like. Well, I got up to date. Top three. I know. I think Canada was third yesterday. So I'll say Canada. They are number two with nine medals, four gold. The Netherlands, I think, was up there. They're number three with eight medals, three gold. And I don't remember who the last one was. Number one is Norway. Norway. Home of Nicholas Wieberg. Yes. Yeah, I guess. 11 medals, four gold. The issue with it this early on is there's certain events, like, I can't remember what in particular, but, like, the Netherlands dominates something, cross country or something like that. So all those events are done, so they might have six golds or something from that, or ice dance or something. Maybe it's kind of like following the presidential election. And all the Republican states are in, so it looks like sure, yeah. right? And it's, you know, like the next thing you know, California comes in and it's over. Maybe that's the thing with the Olympics too, as to why it hasn't sparked our interest as much. Is like the the sexiest games, I guess, haven't been played yet. I mean, we we heard off the top that guy was loving the cross country, but it's not exactly the, the big draw. The hockey hasn't started. I've uh, heard a lot of the the ice dancing has started, but that's kind of like the stepchild to the With, figures I heard skating. the half pike looked really dangerous i guess a lot of this stuff is really dangerous based on how 
everything sort of fakely built. So. I heard them say something like the bobsled or the luge. One of those was kind of like not completed. The yeah, way this is officially it. the Olympics of like just praying no one gets hurt. There's not an international incident. Right. You know, it's just can we just kind of get it over with and everyone kind of. Yeah, I don't know if we would have discussed it in the last podcast, but the night of the the ceremony, I think it was the night of or the day before, there was a scare of someone trying to hijack a plane and fly it to the Olympics. So, yeah, it has been ugly, but uh, yeah, I, I think my interest will pick up. I don't think this is one of them things I just don't try to find. Our second thing this week, uh, shared thing, we've kind of expressed our opinion on this via the basketball player whose name I can't remember. I don't think he even played a game. Collins. Collins. But uh, Michael Sam's defensive end from Missouri expected to be about a third, fourth round pick. Someone that will be taken on, what is that, day three now in the NFL draft. Uh, is going to be the first NFL, or the first openly gay player in the NFL. And uh, good. I, I think the reaction of people that, from what I've heard, has all been positive basically it's it's what you should be saying it's like i don't care uh if he can help us win and he's not a problem in the locker room anything like that then what's the big deal you know well, like, i know for us on this podcast we've always kind of stressed like how little this means to us and like how maybe we almost feel guilty about that to an extent uh maybe just in a way it's, it's not either of our fight so right we i don't know that we have a huge passion about it and I don't want to say I'm indifferent to it, but I'm more than looking forward to the day where this doesn't matter. Because just right, I think in terms I'm... of what I look for in linebackers coming up to towards the draft, his orientation means nothing to me. Right. I commend this kid for his incredible courage and bravery because it's certainly not easy to be first in much of anything, let alone right. openly gay NFL player. It's got to be really near the high end of the list of things that wouldn't be easy to be the first of, so I commend his courage. I don't know that his timing makes very much sense. Before the draft? I don't know why you wouldn't wait to do this till after the draft. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um... And I also, the one thing I hate about it is now, we talked about this with Jason Collins, if he gets drafted above projection, so let's say let's say Mel Kuyper, who everyone trusts, says... This guy should be picked around 70th, okay? Right. And he goes 50th. That team's going to be accused of... Looking for publicity? Lo- looking for publicity. A publicity stunt. Yeah. And then if he like, goes 90th, the other teams are going to be accused... Being the homophobic. league as a ge- in right. general is going to be accused of being homophobic. Right. Yeah, and like what you said before about uh, how our opinion is almost that of indifference... It's not indifference, like, to me anyway. It's not just, geez, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care what this... I think that's the attitude people should have, though, as a whole, is that it's just, it's not a big deal what his... Can he can he tackle? You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the mentality people should have. Like you said, we don't, we're don't we not trying to be dismissive sounding about it. But, right, uh, like, right off the top, I, I think his bravery is incredible. Like, right. I totally commend him for being willing to... Because he's not the only one, right? So... We know that just based on statistics. Right. I've heard this compared a little bit to Jackie Robinson. I mean, the main difference there is Jackie Robinson was a superstar, and chances are this guy will be like a fringe player. But uh, if not, I mean, people don't talk now when a black player gets drafted, and that's largely due to, to guys like Jackie Robinson. So hopefully that will be the same issue 
uh, I don't even know why we need to know that, honestly. Maybe someday we won't. Like, we'll just understand, yeah, there's probably gay players in the NFL. I don't well, know. and I think a lot of people have been killed for saying kind of that uh, opposite thing. Like, you know, none of the straight players have announced that they're, they're straight. straight. And I think that you're being silly if that's kind of your Well, point. right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's an obvious difference between the two. That's the whole, well, there's no white history month you know i mean that never comes off well when you try to argue that side of it yeah i think it's pretty obvious like you know why michael sams decided he thought he needed to do this and i commend his courage i I don't know that i kind of agree with his timing if i was him but that's more from a strategy strategy certainly from a strategy standpoint but then again i guess Maybe he felt he owed it to whatever team does draft him, or maybe he felt like he wanted to be on the team that draft him, knowing this. Sure, yeah, you know? that's yeah, that's that's a thought. Yeah, so, well, good luck, Michael yeah, Sams. I mean, it's going to be difficult at times, I'm sure. It'll, um, it'll be interesting. You you tweeted something about how if the team that picks him up gets hard knocks, that'd be very compelling. I mean, HBO would do backflips. They would. Yeah. All right, my last thing this week. Uh, there's a dead spin. Well, the article I saw was on dead spin. It's actually from a guy who writes for boring as heck. Uh, I don't know if it's a blog or what it is. I'd never heard of it before today, but I followed a tweet to an article about how this guy just ruins mock drafts. And I'm sure some people out there are going to hate this guy. I find it hilarious. Uh, he goes into mock drafts with and ruins them. Uh, in the one, he goes in with Big Time Mock Draft Fan. That's his handle. And, he and you should clarify because you're just talking about the NFL draft. That you mean fantasy baseball yeah, mock he, draft. He does both, but the recent he posted yesterday, he posted uh, he was doing baseball drafts. But he went in and with his first pick selected A.J. Perzinski, which would not be a good first pick. And then it just to, his stuff isn't so hilarious, but it's the comments. People get so mad about it rather than just leaving and starting another one for two minutes later. <laughs> he's really uh, – you mentioned you know, how he, he's trolling, and he, he's found a way to make the trolling itself sort of funny. Right. Yeah, I mean he's it's – He's humorizing the trolling. It, if he's going to take screenshots and uh, post an article and make me laugh – that's he's not just some guy in there trolling for his own amusement. I guess he's kind of, although that'd be funny too. I don't know. I can't imagine getting that mad over someone wrecking a mock draft. Kind of makes me remember that we should do something. We should get it. We got to find out who the Matthew Barry is of baseball besides Matthew, Matthew Barry, Barry because right? he's <laughs> proven he's probably not going to come on. But we should do a fantasy baseball interview or two. Sure. So if you run into anyone ruining mock drafts. Uh, don't say anything too mean because you might find yourself on a blog. Uh, my last thing today, the Cleveland Browns never, I guess, ceased to amaze me. Well, did they really fire their GM today? Yeah, I don't know. It's all they, that's all over the they news. They just hired a head coach. Yep. What are, they, what are they doing? Why didn't they fire the GM before they hired the head coach? They just now decided today that this GM was no good? This reminds me a bit of the Bills. I think they did this with... Uh their last GM before Doug Whaley. But that said, Doug Whaley was in the organization, and they just kind of promoted him. But they let they let the old GM draft, which I thought was strange. You could argue the Sabres did that with Darcy Regeer. Why let him stick around and manage G- the draft? Jimmy Haslam, who's the owner of the Browns, only one year ago set up this front office structure uh, being led by Michael Lombardi, who f- used to be on this podcast before. Yeah. He was in a, maybe he'll be on again someday. We can ask him. 
tell kind of circus the Browns are running over there. I don't remember the exact number, but, but he, he's out of a job. Yeah, in something like 400 days, they've had three coaches and three GMs. So that's for the math. That's a little over a calendar year. And they've tra- they've traded a fourth overall pick. They killed it in that trade, though. They did. It seems that way. I mean, the way he played for Indy, right? So what? That was the GM made that trade, <laughs> yeah, right? right. I, I, I don't know. Isn't that like his most significant move on the GM scorecard right now? Unless people hated the Pettin hiring, but someone has to sign off on that, right? Like the owner must sign off on the coach hiring. So if you hated it, imagine if you took if you're that you took that head coaching job, and now you you have a new boss already. Yeah, I heard the local NFL guy Joe Biscalia kind of argue that that might help Pettin because like if this happened later in the season. The GM would definitely probably go, or definitely probably. The GM has a better chance of going at coming in and saying, like, I want my own guy next year. Whereas now they're both kind of starting together at least, so maybe they build a rapport and he kind of becomes his guy. I don't know. Either way, yeah, it's if you're petting, you're a head coach now, but you just walked into a disaster. And it's a Bills fan saying that, that that's. That's embarrassing over there. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the Cleveland Browns, but anytime something happens with them, it's they go they go shocking, right? <laughs> they shockingly traded Trent Richardson earlier in the year. Then they shockingly fired their head coach, who they only gave one season to, who had three different quarterbacks in that right. season, including one being Brandon Whedon. And now today they shockingly fire their GM and replace him with so much shocking, Ray, Ray Farmer. So, so much what, shockingly drafts. Brandon Whedon. Right. I mean, <laughs> keeps going back. All right. So, Brian Curtis hasn't been on in a while. He's going to join us next. Rob Pizzo is going to talk Olympic hockey with us later. In the middle, we got a book club update, and we're going to end this thing with one last thing in a somewhat shorter edition of the Sportscasters. <laughs> Our next guest is from Fort Worth, Texas, and is a graduate of the University of Texas. He's a staff writer at Grantland, where he recently wrote about the crazy world of college football recruiting and the equally crazy world of hockey fighting. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters welcome to the very talented Brian Curtis. How's it going today, Brian? Thank you. Uh, I'm doing great. I guess I'm the crazy world... uh correspondent for Grantland. Yeah, that's, new, a, uh, that's a real interesting couple of days. Basically, I think the pieces went up together, you know, consecutively, obviously. I don't think anyone is foolish enough to think, you know, like on February 6th, you sat down and wrote this one and put it up, and then on the 7th, you, oh, let's write this one, wrote that and put it up. But uh, uh, obviously, a lot goes into writing that. Well, I don't know. Let's start with the first one that I read. The first one that I read, actually, which was the the recruiting one, and it's interesting because I never really have been like that big of a recruiting guy when it comes to college football. And if you're not, you, you can really easily be really, really into college football and never know how big college football recruiting is until the right guy comes along that your team <laughs> is into, like is 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 in on, and then it happens to. And it, actually, for me, it was Adrian Peterson. Was the guy uh, who, like I didn't even know, you know, about college football recruiting that there was this subculture on the internet, and then I heard about this seventeen-year-old kid who was going to change Oklahoma football forever, and 
<laughs> I, you know, did a Google search one day or something, and there, there it was. There was this this crazy world of of college football recruiting. Yeah, and before you know, it, you're paying a hundred dollars a year, right, for, for like a- three three different sites. Who have uh, you know each of whom have a source close to the process of Adrian Peterson, who would like to tell you you know what Adrian thought when he woke up this morning and what he thought when he was at math class and uh, noises they're hearing and making and possible decommits and it's it's a fantastically insane world. But I think, uh, and, pe- and it goes all people who aren't into it just don't understand that it goes all year round. You know, it's not a February. It used to be like a kind of January February thing, and then you'd kind of you know have this crazy day on Sunday day and then you'd kind of forget about it. But now it's it's basically it's basically an entire year long industry. It's kind of amazing. And I really like what you did with going with the 59th ranked. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure that there's a story been written about Joe Mixon or something like maybe someone <laughs> right. another five star uh, OU recruit that maybe could have been. But you went with uh, the 59th guy, and it was kind of interesting for me because I don't know that there's a site that ranks college hockey recruits but if there was i bet my brother would have been right around the 59th ranked recruit see, see right and look at the difference right yeah I mean, this guy you know has multiple television stations uh i did probably were like 10 to 20 reporters there at this thing in miami uh not to mention like you know he got called, I bet, during the process, as it's called, the recruiting is called, I bet maybe like 40 to 50 different writers. I would say that's not a crazy estimate. You know, wanting his thoughts on, depending on the day of the week and depending on, in uh, Toronto's case, who he was committed to. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's an unbelievable thing. And he's number 59. Imagine if he was number 8, <laughs> something like that. His whole life would be, uh, he would actually never get off the phone, I think. Well, I think the obvious question is, how did you get hooked up with, why Trevante like, like, how did this this specifically kind of come together? Why, why, and how? I wanted, I wanted to find somebody who was uncommitted all the way right up to signing day. If you look at the like rivals top hundred list, there are probably about tw- ten to twenty guys. I wanted somebody who had a little bit of drama in their decision. Who wasn't, you know, some guys don't commit, but pretty much everybody knows where they're going. Chirante had still had a little bit of drama hanging on to the end, and then he was also interesting to me because, as you can tell from the piece. I'm very, very, I, def- I tend to defend recruits uh, in all these kind of little media, quote-unquote, controversies they get into. And Trevante, in a, sense, in a way, was kind of the least sympathetic because he'd been committed to four different schools. So I think in the eyes of people on the web, right, he, or by the end, he had been committed to four different schools. So he was sort of like, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, Obviously, you know, you didn't look, if you looked at his resume for the last couple of years, you didn't say, oh, that guy's great. You know, if you said, oh, that guy can't make up his mind or something like that. So in a way, for me, I think that was, he was more interesting because he'd gone through that and he'd been kind of a, you know, a hard case, so to speak, on the internet. And that was, I don't know, just seemed more interesting to me. I don't know how a kid could go through that, that four times on the internet because I've seen what happens the first time you tell us. You, tell, you know, I mean, in Twitter, you would have thought that you just went and killed out 900,000 grandmothers. You know, the I, think so, you, I think you just hide basically every time you, uh, you send them out, you do like one interview. And then, you know, it often helps if you commit immediately to another school because then you get the, you know, corresponding, like, tidal wave of happiness to go with the negative tidal wave. (laughs) So, like, he would, you know, leave Louisville, but then he would come to Florida. So, oh, okay, he's great. And it's Miami, right? Hometown team, and everybody's excited. And then, yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. That was, uh, I'm sure, something he would 
never ever want to relive again. Relive again. He looked uh, completely relieved after it was over. Yeah. Now, when he did eventually decide on LSU, how were you one of the first people to know? Like, just based on being the one preparing the story, or like, how did how did kind of like finding out unwind around with everyone that was kind of involved in being there and and part of the hoopla? I suspected LSU because of the noises people were making on the internet, but he didn't actually tell me until he told the whole world. And in fact, I asked him not to because I told him I was a, I, the one deal I made with him. So I said, "I'm also going to show up a day early, but I'm not going to ask you anything about where you're going to school. <laughs> I just want to know about what your life is like and what you have planned for this signing ceremony slash hat dance, as we call them, the next day, where he was going to announce his decision. See, because I didn't really, I, I didn't really care. I mean, you know, I, I was interested, you know, to know the end of the drama, but at that moment, I really wanted to know, like, you know, what was going through his mind and what you know kind of what kind of things he had thought about you know what kind of how what he had what kind of decisions he'd made and it was interesting to me him saying like you know i don't want to if i'm going to have two hats out there right you and i know that this this now comes down to this thing where the recruit puts out three or four hats in front of the baseball right. caps at their yep. prospective schools and they pick one right and then sometimes they tease it and they put it on their head and they take it off and all that stuff so tronte had seen this and had seen the backlash the hat dance backlash so to speak on the internet so he was going to not, he was going to have two hats, but he was only going to hold one hat. He wasn't going to mess with the other hat. He would, he didn't, as it turned out, even bring the other hat. He, he was going to keep the, the first hat secret under the table. So I just wanted to hear about all those, the kind of things he thought about, which were, of course, all are influenced by what we're talking about, all the stuff online, all the crazy people online. I think it'd be so interesting to have someone who was the 59th recruit. Like I said, I wonder what, 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 like what him? Because my brother ended up going to Ivy League school, so I, I can't even ask him to like go track down a football player and ask him to, uh, to compare what it ended up being like. But I remember what the like reading through this. I remember thinking, no, no, never anything like that. No, never anything like that. No, no, it wasn't like that at all. And my brother, I mean, I, I said my brother's a pretty big, uh, pretty big college hockey recruit, and you know you get five official visits. He went all five on all five. All five coaches made a big pitch. He picked a place, and that was kind of it. Right, right. No, it was not televised live on ESPNU. No. Is that what you're saying? No, and <laughs> and no. When he uh, when he made his uh, commitment, there was no angry or positive tweets from uh, any fans of either team because I don't think any of the fans in either team knew. <laughs> he, <laughs> he played junior hockey in the USHL at the time, and the, the USHL did write an article and release it on their website, which was cool. Like you know, so there was that. Right, that, that was it. So it's completely, completely different worlds, and um, totally. Yeah, we built, we built, we we built something amazing. Uh, you know, and what I was always funny to me, what struck me in doing this was, you know, I'd always, I'd always read on the web that people hated, you know, not and not just fans too, but even some of the recruiting reporters, they really hated the hat dance. They said, oh, this is disrespectful, and you know, this is just silly, and it's kind of where the whole process becomes absurd. But what's so funny to me about that is. So we, the media, bring these 16- and 17-year-old kids into into our world, right? We bother them in math class by calling them up and asking them where they're going to school. Trevante told me his phone would often ring during the school day. you get texts during the school day, you know, and on and on for the latest information. We call them 100 million times. We put their picture on the web. We put their highlights on the web. And then the recruit says, okay, I'm part of your media world. I'm going to, you know, have this ceremony that's going to be televised and it's going to have a little bit of showmanship to it. And then we just freak out and say, wait a second, you know, yeah, how dare you? How dare you put this ceremony on, you know? 
how dare you, uh, you know, become an even bigger media star than we were making you out to be on Rivals.com or 24-7 or whatever. And I just find that to be completely ridiculous. You know, it's, you can't have it both ways, right? If you want to let these kids do their thing in anonymity, fine, okay. But if you want to report on them, if you want to turn this recruiting process into this, you know, money-making journalistic odyssey, then I think, you know, then whatever they do, that's, you know, that's, you're just going to have to live with it. And that's just, that's what it is. You've turned, you've helped turn them into a commodity who could actually be on ESPNU, right, whose decision is so important. It's just, and it's a little weird to then try to bite, you know, try to snap at them when they do that. It's so similar to how we treat the candid athlete, you know, where in one sense we want, when we ask a question to an athlete, if they veer away from what we view as the accepted uh, the accepted answer, almost we we kind of bite their throats off. You know what I mean? Like Sherman is a good example. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you didn't come up there and and win the way we wanted you to win, so we're gonna kill you for it. But if he would have just came up there and won the way everyone wanted him to win, everyone would have said, "Ho hum, that guy's he's boring, just like everyone else." You know, all he did was thank God and his mother and walk away. You know, so. <laughs> exactly right. Like, like, I don't understand where we draw the line, right? Richard Sherman is a great example, right? Because he was honest, you know, he gave his reaction in the heat of the moment. And, but that's where, we, so we don't mind a football player running out to a smoke machine, you know, before the game, but we do mind them giving an honest answer about how they beat the other team's brains in. Like, that's where we draw the moral line. Like, I don't know, doesn't really make any sense to me. <laughs> we don't mind the recruiting reporter calling the guy in the middle of uh, algebra class, but we do mind him announcing his decision on ESPN. It's just really, really strange. You know, sports columnists don't often get hounded to write sequels, maybe the way movie uh, script writers do, but either it's a lot of cool things, cool part twos to this you could do, like looking into basketball and how things might be different or the same for a basketball recruit, or even imagine what it must be like for someone who is as equally, maybe not as equally, but a very, very high basketball recruit and a very, very high football recruit. I mean, those kids, their heads must just be spinning. Absolutely. I mean, no, you're right. There's like so much potential there. And basketball is a totally different thing, you know, with early signing periods. And sometimes the, I feel in basketball, you know, the recruiting starts kind of when they're like freshmen, right? A lot of the time, freshmen in high school, because people know them through AAU or AAU, sorry, or, you know, the high school team and they start, uh, it's just a completely different, completely different animal and, and, and equally insane or even more so. Yeah, I sent a sequel. So I want to ask you some things about the hockey column, too. A visit from the Goon Squad, which is also at Grantland.com. But I'm curious, before I ask you too much about it, a guy from, from Dallas, Texas, or Fort Worth, Texas, and it's the same thing anyway, right? Pretty much? Or no? No, you're, hurt. you're killing me. You're killing me. That is different. I, would, I wouldn't be allowed back in Fort Worth if I said it was all the same thing. Yeah, because Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Fort Worth is the really nice place, and Dallas is the place where they, where they killed JFK, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, you're getting closer. To right, this. right, there we right, go. Right. Uh, so, what did you know about hockey? Kind of going in, growing, uh, growing, growing up, up and uh, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. It was, it was uh, this, you know, kind of weird, distant sport where. You know, every so often you go to the baseball card shop and see some weird trading card from some guy that played for a team called the Calgary Flames that you didn't understand. I didn't understand where Calgary was. The stars came when I was in high school. And, you know, it took, I think, the Metroplex, the, that's what it's called, the Metroplex. It took the Metroplex a long time to sort of even embrace it, you know, because it was just, it came from Minnesota, right? Hockey, ground zero. 
and you know we kind of stolen away their team. And so I didn't know a whole lot about it, and it really wasn't until I moved to the East Coast that I started going to games and started getting a lot more into it. But uh, no, it was definitely not something I followed as a kid at all. Was it different to write a column about a sport that meant nothing to you as a kid as opposed to maybe every other column you've ever written about a sport that did mean something to you as a kid, just kind of an origin? Totally. It's harder, for one thing, because you you don't start with any... You know, you don't start with a thousand hours of uh, tape in your head, you know, like with college football or something like that. So you start kind of from from scratch a little bit, and you're trying to kind of understand. But in some ways, it's also easier, I think, because you kind of know what you don't know. You know, if I'm like if I'm starting to write about college football, sometimes I'm just thinking, oh, I know all that, I know all that, you know, and then I get to start to have to sit down and write, and I don't actually know what I'm talking about. But um, with hockey, you know, I have to like make. 10, 20 more phone calls and figure it out and go to Islanders practice and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a diff- it's a totally different process uh, and a little bit more difficult, but it's really fun in the end because you learn about. I would not have been a uh, regular visitor to HockeyFights.com if I had started the piece. Yeah, I think when we were, were talking about your piece on recruiting, it was really easy for the the listeners to get an idea of what that piece might be about. Why don't you give them a little bit more specifically about what the Hockey Fights piece is about? site hockeyfights.com founded by David Singer who still runs it. It's been around for 15 years since 1999. And basically what happened is the fight, you know, back in back in the 90s when there wasn't nearly the blogosphere uh, that there is today, especially the hockey blogosphere, it was really hard to find information about fights out there. You could look at hockey box scores and maybe see maybe some of them would divide, you know, the majors and the fighting majors or something like that, but It'd be really hard to tell, and of course, if you look at penalty minutes and stuff like that, but it was really hard to tell any information about a fight. You didn't know who won. You didn't know what happened. You know, you didn't know who got knocked out unless something really gruesome happened and it made the paper. So David comes along and he says, you know, I want to do something about this. So he starts basically trying to put video of every fight and log every fight that happened in the NHL and collect them all. And so what he does is every night during the season from October to April, and then that's when the playoffs start, he sits down and, you know, using his computer and center ice, uh, he sits there and makes a clip of every single fight as it happens, puts it up on the on his site. And you can, of course, search them by combatants, by teams, by season, by league, because he does some AHL stuff and some other minor leagues. And he comes out, he has this incredible database. Basically, he's turned the fight into a sortable stat. And he's helped kind of these these things that were always kind of existed, you know, somewhere kind of half-remembered and stuff, he's now made them into this thing that you can find easily. And it's, just kind, of, it's kind of an amazing project. Does and something requires a ton of dedication, as you can imagine. Does he feel like it's a project that might be slipping away from him? Does he look at the idea of the hockey fight as something that might be dying, or does he look at it as something that will live forever? I think he sees... I think he sees yeah, this it's kind of like the NFL, right? With the with the head injuries, head right. traumas in the NFL, and the violence in the NFL, it pops up every couple of years. But I think with just like the NFL, this latest kind of period of concern is the biggest that there's ever been. I think he would agree with that, and I think it's probably the one that's. You know, the NHL really hasn't, you know, done a whole lot. You know, they keep making really small little rules. I think I wrote about this in the story that where it's it's 
kind of designed to rein in the hockey fight, but it doesn't actually stop the hockey fight. And players kind of figure out really easy ways around it. There's this thing they put in where you get an extra penalty if you instigated the fight. So then all the players just said, okay, we're just all going to start the fight at the same time. Right. So we're never, no one's ever going to instigate it, right? So we're never going <laughs> to So it turned out to be pretty much useless. Uh, that kind of stuff. So I think... I don't think the fight is an immediate danger. You know, I mean, yeah, that's, a, I think every, what everybody thinks, and probably with David, probably, I don't know if I asked him directly about this, but when somebody gets really, really hurt, you know, and somebody, we've seen guys, including this season, get knocked out, right? Hit the ice and go completely and, and, and get a concussion or get, or get just completely knocked unconscious. Somebody were to get really, really hurt or, God forbid, die in the middle of a hockey fight. I think that's when it would end, you know, and that sounds pretty gruesome, but I think, you know, from all we've seen and all that's happened in the NHL, that may be what's required to, for it to finally go away. And, you know, I think there's two really specific kinds of hockey fights, too, and I don't know if this is something you guys that, that you guys talked about. I think there's the kind of hockey fight that comes up in the course of the game because something specific happened in the game, a, re- a, a hockey fight that's a reaction. And then there's right. this kind of pure ordain fight, which is like kind of what we saw in the mess in Calgary and Vancouver uh, a couple, I guess, weeks ago now where just everyone decided that when the game started there was going to be a big fight. I think it's more the <laughs> latter than the, than the former that they want to get out of the game. They, they I think that they're doing – a lot more to try to get rid of this just kind of like, okay, we're going to have a fight idea as opposed to this fight that occurs. It's almost impossible to defend that kind of fight, right? I'm like, I don't really know what the defense is. I can, because that's not part of the game. It's just something that everyone decided to have happen. Right, it's like premeditated crime versus crimes of passion, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. But if you look at that Vancouver-Calgary fight, what the NHL got mad at was not the fight and not the ridiculous, you know, <laughs> the fact that the game was fair. They got mad at Tortorella for trying to force his way into the locker room. That's what they considered to be the breach of decorum, right? Not the fight itself. Now, they eventually did slap a penalty on the opposing coach. But Tortorella, John Tortorella doesn't try to force his way in the locker room. I'm not sure that any penalties are levied for that thing, right? right. I mean, any game suspensions. And none of the players were suspended. Right. So... Although they were all yes. suspended essentially a game because there was, what, right. 10 guys thrown out two seconds in. So you thrown out of the game, right. But there was, so you got you to think, you know, is that really, are they really sending a message with that or are they just saying, okay, the fight was okay, but as long as, you know, your coach doesn't try to bring the fight into the hallway. And that was obviously premeditated, right? That's a great example of what you're talking about. But, yeah, you're right. But for the one thing, right, the last five minutes of the game thing, right, where teams are just kind of gooning up right at the end and being stupid, you know, they got rid of the, pretty much gotten rid of those. Right. That kind of stuff. Does but, yeah, you're right. There is a crime of passion, right, where it's like you see, you know, you see a guy and, you know, here we go. Okay, let's, let's, that's not, that behavior can't continue. Let's, let's go. Right. And I think that every argument for hockey fights kind of evolves out of something like that. Well, you know, my teammate came across around the net and his head was down and this guy take, took a run at him and I was right there. So then I, I you know, wanted to stick up for my opponent and, I, and we had this fight and then the whole thing was dead from there. It, it didn't have to go on. You know, we squashed it. I think the evolution of those defenses that you can make a case for come from that kind of fight. The other one, it just... As someone who loves hockey and has my whole life, it just seems like such a waste to me and not at all what I'm in it for. But, you know, obviously there's this whole subculture of people who are in it for this, I suppose. Does he make money off the site? Yeah, yeah. but it's not enough. I think it's still more in the, it's more in the hobby passion project phase because he's got a really big full-time job in Manhattan media. You know, or he's like a, he's, he's, you know, he's got other stuff to do. So it's not like... 
it's not like he's running it as some giant money-making business. The um, Yeah, and what you're talking about, you know, I don't even know if it's subculture. Right? I mean, obviously there's a subculture of people that were before that now are watching the stuff on the web and before we're trading tapes and stuff like that. But, you know, you go to Philly and when people start fighting, they ring a ring bell, the sound of a ring bell in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the arena. So, you know, it's not just the subculture, right? People love to watch that stuff. And it's a huge draw of hockey. I was at the Rangers game the other night and people just love a good fight, you know? So, yeah, I was at, there's a bar in Buffalo that plays hockey fights on the TVs. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, That's you know, I mean, you can't hear the TVs, so you know when the sports for the night are over or whatever, as it gets later in the night, that you, you just look up and they have some kind of like Rob Ray's greatest hits DVD on or something. So yeah, it's kind of like wrestling highlights. Yeah, anyway. I'm talking with Brian Curtis, staff writer at Grantland. You can find him on Twitter at Curtis Beat. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know why we didn't have you on at the time, but it might be one of my favorite things you've ever done. You wrote a really great oral history about the 89 World Series and the earthquake. And I think that within that piece and, and Grantland, does anyone do the oral history better than Grantland? Like, is this something you guys have made a point to kind of master over at Grantland? Oh, I'm not going to argue that someone does it better than us. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we've they've really thrown we've really thrown ourselves into to making that work, you know. And those things are a ton of work to do it well, and you have to find the right people, and and it's it's just a lot of. I think that we worked on that. I worked on it with a partner, Patricia Lee. We worked on it for probably like three months. You know, we were doing other stuff too, but just to you know track down old giants and A's and. You know, people who worked at Candlestick Park, and I told that my favorite one was we were trying to find a guy who was piloting the Goodyear blimp during the earthquake. His name was, I'm pretty sure his name was, if I'm remembering right, John Creighton. So I called Goodyear, and of course, John Creighton is retired. No one no one knows where he is. And so I just started calling guys named John Creighton in California, <laughs> leaving messages on their machines, being like, hey, <laughs> did you ever pay by any chance pilot a blimp? If so, please call me back at this number. And, you know, a couple of days went by and anything, and finally my phone rang some random California number, and I was like, hello. I said, hi, this is John Creighton. I used to be the pilot of the Goodyear Blimp. I was like, I'm so glad I found you. That is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So there were a lot of stuff like that, and, you know, and one of the other ones from that piece that was really fun was we found, there was a guy who was on a, on the top of a giant light pole, and he just, the poor guy, had, I mean, like 150 feet in the air, had been told, it was a stagehand, and he'd been told to climb up there and fix a lighting, uh, a light, uh, and a windsock that was actually on the top of this lighting pole right when the earthquake hit. So he's 150 feet in the air and just hanging on to the light pole so he doesn't go flying through the air. He made it okay, but we saw like one or two references in the papers because people had cut one, like one reporter or two reporters had interviewed him as soon as he climbed down off the pole. Of course, he just disappeared. But we went to like, you know, the staging the Union of San Francisco and all this stuff and finally dug up an address for him and then finally found him. That was really satisfying. This was really fun to do. Yeah, and, and there was, I, I'm trying to think what, I just had read another one recently about something, I can't even remember what, but I just remember thinking, man, not as good as the Grantland ones. Those guys at Grantland, they know how to write these things. I don't know. Uh, you're very nice. You're very All right. Nice. Brian Curtis is uh, the author of many great pieces at Grantland, which we mentioned, uh, too. He's worked on recently a visit from Goon Squad which is about the world of hockey fighting and also Trevante's party about college football recruiting. You've done some other stuff 
um, in the past, like we mentioned, the uh, the uh, earthquake thing. What were we at? What was this, the first thing we had? Josh? Oh, Josh Hamilton, I think, was what we had. We were Josh Hamilton, about yeah. When you came on. What happened to that guy? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, that signing didn't turn out so well. No, that's not. He's uh, yeah. working out for him, I guess. Though monetary, you know what I mean. Like he doesn't have to give any oh, money yeah. back, as far as I know. For no, no, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's I, not. He's not going to make a donation back to Art Marina. We always get the same answer. to This is you know we don't want to jinx it, but anything else that's close we can look forward to or look. Uh, that might be I'm, I wish you could tell me because I'm looking at like four or five things and I haven't finished yet. So I've got to I've got to put my nose to the grindstone. I don't have anything. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing in the near future. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of ideas. You know, maybe if feature like you know a podcast without any support in Buffalo, New York. That's been for four <laughs> years getting these incredible. I mean, something like that maybe might be really good. I don't know. Definitely a neglected topic. Right. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. yeah I mean, sure. it really, it hasn't had the long form treatment that it demands. Right. Absolutely. Probably would re- right. really annoy all the people who run such great podcasts where you guys come from. But uh, eh, <laughs> I'm putting it on the list. All right. Thanks, Brian. Right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Brian Curtis from Grantland for being on the program. Again, it's been way too long since we had Brian on. Really enjoy his work over at Grantland. We mentioned this last week, and uh, we're going to be mentioning it every week for the foreseeable future. It's going to be a real busy time for the book club. Uh, three books in a row, uh, a book club book of the month for February, March, and April. Let's start with the book club book of the month now. And I'll give you a quick update on what's going on for March and April. The book club book of the month for now is Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run by Ed Sherman. Uh, Ed's a guy who runs ShermanReport.com and has been really, really kind to our podcast. So we're really, really excited about being able to kind of return the favor and uh, do a book club uh, update for or a book club to feature his book in the book club. Uh, the book's available on Amazon now and um, will be available everywhere. I think probably by the time you hear this or maybe next Tuesday, but coming out real soon in stores, but already available uh, on Amazon. And it's about that home run from Game 3 of the 1932 World Series between the Cubs and Yankees. 50,000 people there, not many of them still alive, so really a tough book for Ed to write. And the question is... Did Babe Ruth really call his shot before that home run, or is that just a myth? And the question, again, is answered in Babe Ruth's called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run by Ed Sherman, the book club book of the month for February. Just a quick update on March and April. Uh, the book club book of the month for March has arrived here at the Sportscasters. We got both books. Uh, one for us to read and then one to give away. Uh, Mr. Perlman has decided and the publisher has decided to do a contest for the book Showtime. Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. It's Perlman's recap to not only our book club book of the month, but our book club book of the month, book of the year from two years ago, Sweetness. Uh, so I look, took a look at Showtime. I'm kind of reading Ed's book right now. So I didn't have a ton of time to get into reading Showtime, but I'd read a little bit, and it seems like it's exactly what you would be hoping for from a, uh, a kind of a follow-up to 
to sweetness. So if you're into the book club, the book club book of the month for March is set. Jeff Perlman's book, Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. And we are going to have a copy of that book to give away. And also finalized actually just today, uh, I got the official email from the publisher, Jonah Carey, who was on last week's podcast. His book about the Montreal Expos, Up, Up, and Away, is also going to be a book club book of the month. And we're going to use that as the book club book of the month for April. Uh, that book is already available for pre-order, so you can do that as well. And we are going to have a second copy of that to give away as well. So an exciting couple of months for the book club. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk Olympic hockey with Rob Pizzo. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is the former host of Puck Daddy Radio with our buddy Greg Wyshynski. He currently appears daily as the host of Hockey Night in Canada Radio on the NHL Network Radio on Sirius Satellite XM. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the awesome Rob Pizzo. How's it going today, Rob? Doing pretty good. How are you? Doing really good. Kind of excited. We got a chance to watch a little bit of the tournament today, finally, after kind of talking and thinking about it. And not only did we get to see a couple games, we got a little bit of news, too, that I want to talk to you first. And I'm going to just assume that as a fan, you'll be cheering for Canada. You can tell me if that's wrong, but I'm just going to assume that you are. And I would think that someone who's cheering for Canada is thrilled with the news today that the United States is going to start Jonathan Quick and not Ryan Miller. Oh, well, that's yeah, an interesting way to look at it. I, I looked at it as a, one of the four teams, I believe, in, in the tournament that just have a really, really tough decision to make between the pipes. I mean, Team Canada, we can talk about at nauseum. We know uh, Price, Luongo, they're each going to get a start, and then we'll figure out game three. But uh, you look at what the Americans have to deal with. You've got a guy who, let's face it, uh, as a Canadian, and yes, I'm obviously going to cheer for Team Canada because I am a Canadian at heart, but as a Canadian, I saw a guy in Vancouver that almost stole a whole tournament. You hear about goalie stealing a game, stealing a period. He almost stole that whole tournament. Ryan Miller was absolutely incredible, and he's been doing it with Buffalo this year. I know Buffalo's dead last in the league, and that's what makes it maybe even that much more impressive. He's arguably the best goalie in the NHL this year, and he's playing on the worst team in hockey. But yeah, then he's again, doing it every night. He's doing it every single night. Yep. Then again, you know, you got to look at Jonathan Quick and what he's done. He he took an eighth seed and, and took him to the Stanley Cup Finals and won the Stanley Cup. So I understand where Dan Bilesman is coming from, and I think his quote said a lot where he says we're dealing with an area of, uh, of strength here with our goaltending, and he won a Stanley Cup, which leads me to believe that unless Jonathan Quick completely implodes in this game, I think Jonathan Quick is going to be the man. Team Canada obviously is going to be uh, a little, a few more days before we find out the answer to that one. Right, I totally agree that I think this is a decision he's going to go with it, and I totally disagree that there's any like I disagree with it on every level as a fan of uh, the United States team, someone from the United States, and. I don't even think anything Ryan Miller did in Vancouver should really come into the decision that much. And I don't think that anything Jonathan Quick did to help a number 8th seed win the Stanley Cup should come into the decision that much. Both of those things are well in the past. And in the present, there's one guy versus one other guy. And Ryan Miller, 
every single month this year has had a higher save percentage than Jonathan Quick. Every single month of the season, he's outplayed him statistically. Uh, he hasn't been injured this year like Jonathan Quick has. Uh, and other than the fact that Jonathan Quick plays on a team that gives him a chance to get wins every night, and Ryan Miller plays on a team that doesn't, I don't. I, I just think it's a it's a terrible decision. If I was a fan of any other team uh, in the tournament, I, I would be very very pleased with uh, with the way Bilesma has uh, has went. And uh, you know, a, a few Penguins fans have told me that the uh, one thing that would hold the American team back, that's held their team back, is Dan Bilesma. And to me, as a coach of the team that I care about, because I don't care about the Penguins per se, <laughs> he's zero for one. So. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, there, there are a lot of different factors. I don't know if I necessarily agree with you that the, what happened in Vancouver doesn't necessarily come into play. Well, let's I know just say I've it heard, evens I, out. I, let's say what he yeah, does Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. You know? I see what you're saying. I'm just saying that the, the pressure of the Olympics has been felt by one of those two goaltenders, and one of them knows how to steal it. So I'm not saying that should be a deciding factor. I'm saying it certainly should be a factor. The other thing that maybe came into play here with this decision, and I can tell you're really not happy with Dan Bilesma's decision, um, no, Ryan Miller has faced an absolute ton of shots this year, and he's thrived, which leads me to believe he's one of those goaltenders that he needs 25, 30, 35 shots through two periods to really get himself into a game. I know there are question marks behind the United States blue line, but I still don't think he's going to face that many shots. Whereas Jonathan Quick is the type of guy who's always basically in a one-goal game. For the last five years, the LA Kings are always in a one-goal game, which is, I think, what we're going to see more in the Olympics, regardless of what team they're playing. Uh, you're going to see a lot of one-goal games. So I don't know if that came into play at all, but uh, really, let's be honest, as much as you like Ryan Miller and wish Ryan Miller was in net, this is a good problem to have for the Americans. You've got two phenomenal goaltenders to choose from. Right, I, I, and I think you're right about that. I, I just I think that it's a decision that once he was going to make, and this is just my opinion, maybe yeah. there'll be something different in Russia, that once he was going to make this decision, he was going to plow forward with it, and it may be the one decision that would be the difference between getting a medal and not getting a medal, and I suppose we could go back and forth, and maybe we are splitting hairs a little bit. I just... I just think it was the wrong decision, and I'm sure most people, you know, we do have a lot of Canadian listeners who would love to have the, this problem, I guess, right? So, yeah, and I mean, yeah, when you're looking at the two goaltenders, and we've talked about it right now, you've got two guys who have, like, played on the biggest stages and won. When you look at Team Canada, Luongo, yes, he's the reigning gold medal winner, but neither guy's won a Stanley Cup. Neither guy's, you know, won a Vesna. It's, it's a little different when you're looking at Team Canada. Yeah, I think the one thing about Carey Price, though, is... You, he has spent his whole career in arguably the most pressure-packed position in all mm-hmm. sports. I don't know if there's a maybe starting pitcher for the Yankees or uh, quarterback for – jeez, I can't even think of a team. There, It doesn't get much more pressure than being the starting goaltender for the, for the Montreal Canadiens. So if he hasn't cracked – under that, yeah, I, I I would think I'd give him that at least. I don't, I don't know that yeah, he's the yeah. right guy per se, but if pressure is what you're worried about, he he knows how to handle that. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. And and really, in Montreal, it's it's borderline ridiculous the amount right. of attention that their goaltenders get. If he has a bad practice, uh, it's front page news. So yeah, he he does know how to handle the pressure. Roberto Luongo though has has played well through some pretty 
terrible situations over the last couple of years as well, losing his starting job, getting it back, dealing with trades, and Vancouver may not be Montreal, but it, certainly hockey's on the front page there as well. Uh, Stamkos, obviously, a uh, disappointment maybe for Canada to not have him, and uh, Sweden uh, lost one of the Sedin twins at the end there. There's been some injuries uh, over the course of the NHL season. They're going to hold a couple back, a couple teams back. Is there, yeah. uh, is there a guy that isn't in this tournament that you look at and thinking if he was there, it might have tipped the, the balance between a medal and not a medal for one of these teams? There are a few. I mean, you look at some of the, the injuries here, and I think Steven Stamkos obviously is right on top of that list. He's the best goal scorer on the planet, in my opinion. And I know Alexander Ovechkin might have something to say about that. But I don't know about you. I was really looking forward to seeing Sidney Crosby passing the puck to Steven Stamkos. Uh, and that might come into play, um, you know, in, in those tight games, a power play that isn't necessarily clicking to have him on that side uh, with the one-timers. When it comes to Henrik Sedin, it's interesting because he has been struggling. The Vancouver Canucks have been struggling. His brother's been struggling. And Sweden looked pretty darn good today. And, and so did Daniel, too. So um, they've got a lot of players who can kind of step into that role. And so does Team Canada, I guess. But I, I kind of feel bad for uh, both teams because this is definitely an asterisk that people, people are going to be talking about for a while. Uh, I thought Marty St. Louis should have been on the team initially. So I think this is a little bit of redemption for him to, to get on this team. But Man, when you take away the last time I checked, you've got to score more goals than the other team. When you take away the guy who does it better than anybody on the planet, I think he's got to be number one on that list. Right. I was wondering. I don't know. When I heard first heard the news, I was like, I wonder if that's maybe better for Canada in the sense that I wonder if Martin St. Louis going and going and going the way he's been going almost the last since the lockout ended really is maybe better than a guy who's really just trying it that if it wasn't the olympics this guy wouldn't even be close to the ice yet and i don't know you know the ins and outs his, his injuries maybe as some others but i just wondered if maybe in the end and i guess they made this decision so i guess they sort of agreed with me but i wonder if in the end maybe for team canada for this specific tournament in this specific week if it maybe worked out better that he wasn't quite ready because we just weren't going to see that top steven stamkos regardless you know what I'm uh, you're, you're not. You're, yeah, you're not alone in that opinion. I've heard quite a few people say that, saying, you know, it's not as though he's played this season uh, a good number of games where you can say he is still uh, at top form. The counter argument I've heard many times is, would you take a seventy percent Steven Stamkos? Would you take a sixty percent Steven Stamkos? Sixty's pushing it. I think once you're hitting seventy, eighty percent of Steven Stamkos, I'm taking it now. He didn't make the decision. I don't think Steve Eiserman made the decision. From what I'm seeing, it was clear-cut, almost one plus one equals two. The doctor says you can't go. This is not a matter of can you handle the pain. This is not a matter of you can injure it some more, but you make the decision. The doctor said, I'm not clearing you to play physical contact. So I think given that situation, it's a little better. Obviously, he was devastated, and I kind of laughed at his press conference when Somebody asked him, are you still going to watch the games? He said, well, you know, if it's on where I am, I'm not going to miss any uh, workouts or anything because of it. Uh, I kind of chuckled there because you know he's going to be watching those games. Nice. But I like the fact that the decision was made by someone who went to school for a long time and knows how to make that decision, as opposed to if a doctor went to him and said, yeah, you can play, but you could, you could seriously damage your leg permanently. 
Now you're worrying about, hey, do I want to ruin the rest of my career because of one tournament? Look, the Olympics are huge, Steve. Everybody's going to be talking about it. I'm talking about it every day on our show. That's all we do. But six weeks from now, I don't want to say they're going to be forgotten, but they will certainly be at the bottom of the list. And the Stanley Cup playoffs are going to be right up there. And Steven Stamkos' remaining career is going to be up there. So I like the fact that the doctor made the decision. It seems like a theme of the questions and the things we've been talking about here are pressure. And I want to talk to you about pressure and how it pertains to Russia. But one more small question about Canada and the, and the, the pressure that just being Canada brings. Does the fact that this team hasn't won any medal in the World Junior Championship the last two years... Is it creating any more pressure at home? I know that doesn't mean to really anything to anyone abroad, but I know how much pressure the nation does put on the young kids that go to the World Junior Championship. And for them to go two years without any medal at all, not just like losing on a fluke overtime goal by John Carlson and having to go home with silver or something like that, but getting no medal two years in a row in the most important international tournament there is every year in Canada, is that putting any more pressure at home on this particular team to to get a medal and to get a gold medal? I don't think the two... Let me see if I can put this right. I don't think one involves the other when you're talking about the Olympic team. Uh, I know when Team Canada doesn't succeed at the World Juniors, uh, everybody loses their mind in this country. Everyone starts worrying about whether or not uh, it's at the grassroots or whether or not, uh, you know players coming to play in the, in the CHL or taking Canadian players' spots so they can't grow. We hear this argument each and every year Team Canada doesn't take gold in the World Juniors, but I don't think uh, that lack of success is spilling over into this. Canada's going to feel pressure regardless of what tournament. If there are you know, a bunch of kids playing street hockey here and half of them are American and half of them are Canadian, trust me, they're going to feel the pressure. So I don't think they're re- necessarily related, but I just don't think the pressure is anywhere near what it was in Vancouver. Right. Um, Ovechkin and Russia's got that kind of pressure this time around, right? That was astronomical, right. and I think Russia might top that this year. Right. Uh, you look at what they spent to put these games on. They spent $50 billion to, to hold these Olympics. Um, Putin <laughs> certainly does not want uh, a silver, bronze, or a lack of a medal. This is something that is huge for them. We heard Alexander Ovechkin say in the past when they didn't know if NHLers would be going, saying, I don't care if we have a deal or not. I don't care what it does to my contract. I'm going. Look, most Canadians grew up playing ball hockey and pretending to win the Stanley Cup. Russians grew up playing hockey, pretending to put a gold medal around their neck. This is everything to them. And when you look at this roster, it's... I said this on the show today, it's, it's bananas. It's absolutely insane. You look at their lineup, you look at their, their power play that they unleashed at practice. Ovechkin, Datsuk, Kovalchuk, Radulov, and Markov as your first unit power play. Yeah, You're Malcolm sticking Malkin yeah. on your second <laughs> right. unit power play. That's borderline unfair. Now, all that being said, this is not the Iron Curtain Russian team where they play as a five-man unit. I'm really curious to see if they fall behind 2-0 in a game. If Ovechkin says, give me the puck and get out of the way. If Kovalchuk says, give me the puck and get out of the way. If Datsu tries to do a little too much. This is a team full of guys who are used to being the man on their team. 
So that's what I'm really curious to see. When they face a little bit of adversity, are we going to see a bunch of selfish guys who all want the puck, or are we going to see a bunch of guys who say, look at us, guys. Let's, let's, let's move the puck, let's use each other, and everything will be all right. Again, just my opinion, but when I think about Russia hockey the last, I don't know, say since the day after Dominic Hasek stole that gold medal on, they just feel like fragile hockey players to me. It just, I agree. I agree. You know, they, I, don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't think these guys are equipped to handle the pressure the way Sidney Crosby and those Canadian kids were last time. When I think of like Sidney Crosby, I think of like a mentally tough, tough athlete to the level of Tiger Woods, like one of the like all-time – like I was at the first Winter Classic, and when Sidney Crosby was standing at center ice with the puck with a chance to win the first ever NHL Winter Classic, I knew it was going in the net. You know, I was yeah. like, I'm turning around ready to, if I didn't want to see it, I could have turned around and walked away. I was that sure it was going in, you know, and Crosby being the one who scored that goal, you know, in the, in the gold medal. I mean, that's so predictable because this kid is just so hard-nosed, mentally tough, best in the world. And I don't think Ovechkin or any other Russian is that guy. I just, I don't think that they can do it the way the Canadians did. I just, I'd be really surprised if they won, despite how how good they are. I just think they're too weak. And, and that's just my opinion, though. No, I, I actually completely agree with it. I, I look at the team, and that's why I said I can't wait to see how they face adversity because um, you're right. These are not guys that necessarily buckle down and are able to handle it. And I think your Sidney Crosby-Tiger Woods comparison uh, will say Tiger Woods pre-scandal because right, 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 that's right, where right. I saw the most. Before the, Thanksgiving, I, I've right. said this before, the most mentally tough athlete I've ever seen in my life was when Tiger Woods was dominating. You could have put him in a stadium with 150,000 people screaming, and he's got a 20-foot putt, and you know it. You just know it was going in. Sidney Crosby is a lot like that. Now, we've seen Sidney Crosby um, go off the handle a few times as far as complaining to refs. He still does, but I'm with you in that it's almost though he can will himself to do superhuman things. And I'm not trying to put him on a pedestal that, isn't human, but you're right. I don't necessarily see that with Alexander Ovechkin or Ilya Kovalchuk. Um, perhaps with Pavel Datsuk, and I think that might be a product of environment right. because he plays for a team that is so used to winning and breeds winners that I think that has kind of rubbed off on him. I, I don't look at Pavel Datsuk as a typical, if there's a such thing as that's a typical Russian hockey player, uh, aside from the fact that he's so skilled, sometimes it makes you just roll your eyes at, at what he can do, but he's mentally tough. He is very mentally tough. Uh, but it, this, is, this is it for these Russian players. I truly don't believe NHLers will be uh, at the 2018 games. I really, really don't. So who will you be? add the fact that who, it's... Who would it be then? Like, what's, what's the alternative? Just curious. The alternative is the way they did it before in Okay, and that's amateur players. All right. That's really <laughs> what the essence of what the Olympics were supposed to be, and then suddenly professionals were going in. And I right. know we like to see it. I, I think it'll be the last time. I think they're going to have a World Cup of hockey because they have to satisfy the the thirst for international hockey from hockey fans. Right. Um, but I think you add the fact that it's in Russia. You've got the last possible games, and this is a dream they've had for so long. This pressure is... It's the weight of the world on their shoulders. It really is. And if you're right, if they are not the type of players that can handle that pressure, watch out. They crumble. And if they don't meddle, oh, my goodness, I, I don't <laughs> even want to know what it's going to be like in Russia. So who do you 
who do you got? You gonna you gonna stick with Canada? I, I really am, and I just look at. The There's nothing of this wrong team. with that pick. I didn't think it's no, the right no, pick. and, you know and, I mean? and I've yeah, it's, I know you kind of feel bad as a Canadian, them. right? Yeah, but Shouldn't. but I just look at the depth of this team, and when you look at, I mean, when you've got fourth liners who are superstars, I mean, John, really, John Tavares is your fourth line center. That that alone is is ridiculous. Um, I look at that. My question is still goaltending. Um, but every time I question goaltending, someone seems to stick it in my face. Last year, I just kept questioning the Blackhawks goaltending and Corey Crawford, and they win the Stanley Cup. So right. I'm hoping I'm wrong here. I just you don't ordinarily see Carey Price and Roberto Luongo. They play very, very, very well at times, but they don't necessarily steal games um, the way some other goaltenders who were playing in these Olympics do and can do. Uh, so that's my only question mark. But everything else on this team is just. Is just too deep, and I really, I got to be honest with you. I think the Americans have a really good shot at a medal. It, we could see a repeat of Vancouver with Canada and the U.S. in the gold medal game. Which, wow, we may see that in the men's and women's. So it'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, and uh, it's fine since you mentioned that too, because much as probably no hockey fan out there wants to see this end with a shootout, I was just thinking of like the gold medal game and. You know, it goes to a shootout, and it's like here comes Datsuk. Like, I'm like, what is, what is he gonna do in a shootout in a gold medal game? I don't know. It's just, it's just a funny thought. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've a, seen Pavel Datsuk. <laughs> we've seen Pavel Datsuk do some crazy things. Right. So on does a he Tuesday do that? Night right. in games, yeah. Or does he come on down a Tuesday and like, night in try games to snipe? Thirty-four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. It went a bit longer than I probably wanted it to for on your side, but thanks a lot. It was fun chatting about it, and. uh Good luck to the Canadians who already got a big victory today with Dan Dan Bilesma proving he's an idiot and uh, and uh, picking Jonathan Quick. So, uh, thanks. thanks Anytime, Steve. All right. Anytime. Talk to you yep. I want to thank Rob Pizzo and Brian Curtis for being on the Sportscasters this week. And don't forget, you can always email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. As many of you did to let us know that uh, we were not on iTunes for a bit last week, which was uh, nothing short of a nightmare. So I want to I thank Don for why. sorting that out. I'm not really sure. It sounds almost like their reason was somehow our podcast got submitted twice, which we didn't do anything differently, but it somehow picked it up twice. And then it'll see it as a duplicate and not download it anymore or not update it. So I didn't really do anything except for like change a few things and then change them back and that fixed it. So, so congratulations, iTunes. <laughs> you can now find us there. Uh, you can, uh, like I said, that email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Tweet us at sports underscore casters, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Stitcher, Stitcher, who kind of, I said, hey, iTunes is being jerky to us. Why don't you guys be nice to us? <laughs> so they said, all right, but you got to start doing this other stuff. So I, I did update know. our link on there. Yeah, so everything Stitcher-wise should be updated to uh, help out on Stitcher if you're going to listen that way because they're willing to do nice things for us if we're willing to uh, do nice things for them, and we are. Yes. All right. Oh, I'm first today, and one last thing, and it's just kind of a small thing, but it's pretty cool. Uh, the fam and I, some of the fam and I are traveling down to New Haven and we couldn't ask many people to go this weekend. Actually, we couldn't even invite, 
uh, Miss Caster or Greg's wife because there's just no tickets on Friday for Yale Quinnipiac. Uh, I guess the second rematch of the national championship game sold out so fast that it's actually a thing on StubHub, which I just never really thought of. The second rematch. How did, they played that? in Quinnipiac already. Oh, okay. To a 3-3 tie. Oh, all right. So it's 7-3 Yale at this point. <laughs> if anyone's keeping score. But it's pretty cool. I was looking today on StubHub and noticing that you can get a standing room only ticket for $27.30 if you're willing to buy eight of them. Wow. So if you're just looking for one standing room only ticket, there is one as low as $30. But if you want to sit down... You're going to have to spend as much as $112. I don't see a seat. Actually, there's one for $85.30. That is the cheapest seat, and that's a single. Wow. The cheapest pair of seats that's listed on here is $121.90. This is at Yale, then? This is the Yale home game, yep. So Anthony gets four tickets from to every home game. So it's one for me, one for Greg, one for mom and dad, and that's it. And Do the road teams get any tickets? They get two. Two? Yep. That's cool. Yeah, so it's just kind of interesting that that's a thing on Friday. They're going to be yeah. uh, they're going to be out there. Is QPAC good again? Very good. Because yeah. they were a very senior team last they year. Were, they were, but they've bounced back. they got one of the great freshmen in the country whose name is Anus. It's actually Anus, but, you know. How do you spell it? It's A-N-A-S. So does the, Anus? Yeah, Anus. Anus, but the Cornell kids picked up on real quick. That'd be, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be fun to call him Anus. Yeah, hockey fans are... He, uh, he tweeted about... They might be the most brutal, as far as chanting goes, of anybody. Yeah, I guess one of his first games was in Cornell, and I saw he tweeted that, uh, hey, Cornell fans, it's pronounced, you know, and he wrote it, not Anus. And it, <laughs> his, it was hashtag cl- classic mistake. Right. So he's got to get some right, Yeah, it's good. It. Good but, for him. Yeah, no, they're a very good team. I, I'd assume they're the favorites in the game. All right, my last one last thing this week. Um, again, I didn't have anything overly that I was excited to talk about this week. And I'm sure I've talked about this before, but it's been a while, and I like to do it a few times a year. Um, if I recently visited a family friend who lost their daughter to a disease that is a tough disease and as far as not a lot of people know about it. But one of the things that could have helped her had it been discovered sooner uh, would have been a bone marrow transplant. And to get on the transplant list is really easy. You can go to marrow.org or bethematch.org. I've done it. My wife's done it. They send you a little... uh, envelope with these cotton swab things you just rub them in your cheek put them back in the envelope and send them postage is all paid for takes you a few minutes you sign up online with uh like all your vital information and everything and that's it uh the process from what i've read is not as scary as some people think i think there's two ways they can do it one is basically just like a blood draw type thing where they hook you up to a machine and they somehow remove what they need from you, from your blood, and put your blood back in. The other one does require some sort of surgery, but I think they knock you out. You're back to work within a few days, I think. And this is all paid for, and that slight inconvenience, or with that slight inconvenience, you get the chance to maybe save someone's life, um, maybe a kid. And if that family wants to, a year after the transplant, you can maybe even meet this kid or this person who you're now a real-life superhero to. So if you haven't done it, it's real easy. I suggest you go to bethematch.org and sign up to be a donor. 
And if for whatever reason you're afraid of the process or you're ineligible to, process, to do the process for some reason, you can make donations on that website as well. So it's a cool thing. It's easy. Uh, check it out. And there's tons of people out there that would appreciate it. Trash to the garbage around you. 